Hey everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. I'm Tanner, I'll be one of your hosts today. Before we start, I'd just like to thank you all for your support. Taylor and I are both really happy to make something that people are enjoying listening to. Uh, We really enjoy interacting with our listeners, uh, hearing from you, hearing suggestions, comments, questions, things like that. Uh, We can be reached on social media. We're on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. We're on Instagram at beyond the breakers podcast. And our email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. We also do have a Patreon for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. If you like what we do, you want to give us just a a small amount of your hard earned money. You can do that over on Patreon. There's a few different tiers on there. All of the tiers get the bonus content each month and, you know, helps us out, uh, helps cover things like web hosting fees, research material when that's required, things like that that contribute to the quality of the show. So head on over to Patreon if you're interested. And uh, with all that being said, let me introduce the other half of this podcast, Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Pretty good. Just kind of enjoying a cold, rainy day in Ohio. It finally feels like fall outside. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, Not doing a whole lot. Just ready to talk about some shipwrecks. Yeah, it's a good day to stay inside and podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we can do that. Um, What have you been up to? Not a whole lot. Busy, busy at uh, work, working in the logistics industry right now. It's a, it's a pretty crazy time. But uh, as far as like media consumption or anything, I guess uh, the NBA is back. I've been watching quite a bit of that while I work um, mm-hmm. in the, the evenings and afternoons. So, yeah, that was kind of exciting. The Bucks have gotten off to an interesting start. They looked pretty good, and then they looked really bad. So we'll see how that goes. It's, it's always fun to have another sport to watch. It's weird. It seems like the NBA offseason was like three weeks long. It seems like the mm-hmm. Bucks were just finishing their championship run. Yeah, it is crazy how short the basketball offseason is. Yeah, I haven't really watched much yet. I watched just a few minutes of, of the Bucks' first game. Watching a little bit of football, but doing some other stuff. Been trying to diversify my my media intake a little bit. Uh, I finished a book. I've, I've been back on a reading kick a little bit the last few weeks kind of consistently i finished uh the glenn cook novel the fire in his hands Uh, it's a prequel to his dread empire uh, Mm -hmm. trilogy so anyone interested in military fantasy definitely check out glenn cook aside from that more importantly something i've been looking forward to a long long time months in fact i watched dune nice on hbo max so i checked that out Uh, i watched that friday night I kind of just went on to check to make sure it was it was there and accessible, and then I ended up just watching it, uh, which is crazy for a two and a half hour movie to just watch that sort <laughs> of impromptu. But I did it, and I really enjoyed it. I really loved it. I thought it was really yeah. I've heard cool. a lot of good things. I've heard mostly good things about it. I honestly don't know a whole lot about it, mm-hmm. but I mean, I've heard good things. And I've heard, of course, some people don't like it or whatever. But I don't know. I would check it out. Yeah, I really like the Dune novels. Like some of them aren't aren't great, but it's uh, I really really like the novel, so I was I was really happy for this new film adaptation of it. I was really excited mm-hmm. about the casting, uh, and I was very pleased with how the casting came off uh, in in the movie. Everything about it, I really really liked. I, I've seen some critiques of it. I really loved it. My my specific favorite parts. I loved the way that the Sardukar 
the like elite imperial warriors are, are depicted. I love their whole mm-hmm. aesthetic, and uh, and I really thought that Stellan Skarsgård did such a good job as Baron Harkonnen in like the '80s version, the like the first Dune movie. Obviously, it's. <laughs> It's a pretty heavily criticized movie overall, but my least favorite right. part is the fact that this this character who's supposed to be this sort of like ultimate evil is is sort of like cartoonish and you right. I don't you can't really take him too seriously, I feel like in that movie, but I thought that they did such a good job depicting him and really making him sinister and threatening. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, Honestly, I'm definitely I'm definitely going to check that out. On a side note, I'll say that it's just so amazing that HBO Max does the the home streaming of movies that are in theaters. I think that's yeah. amazing. I hate yeah, I'm not a big theater guy in theaters. I wasn't a big theater guy like before the, the pandemic and everything. It's just not the way I want to spend my time. Yeah, it was, it was so cool. That's, that's how I watched the, the new mortal Kombat movie when that came out. And yeah, it's just such a, such a great feature. I absolutely love it for, for basically right. the price that I would pay for a normal movie ticket. I, that's probably about the equivalent of the monthly price for HBO Max. So it's awesome. Go see mm-hmm. Dune or watch it in your living room. So anyway, that's that's a good lead up. Well, not really. It has nothing to do with our story, but uh, <laughs> but that'll get us into our main focus of today. Yeah, uh, I was excited for this when you told me because it's just not something I would have ever thought of and didn't even know about. Yeah, I think I alluded to it at the end of our last episode, and this is something I'd never heard of until very recently. I kind of have Duolingo to thank for this, because I've, I've been doing Scottish Gaelic garlic, uh, on uh, on Duolingo the past few that months. That sounds like someone from Boston saying garlic. It does. And so I, I've just been reading a bit more about Scotland in general, Scottish history and things like that. This was just something that happened to come up. I saw a reference to the the Paisley Canal disaster. And I thought, hmm, that sounds like something that we could cover on Beyond the Breakers. (laughs) And so here we are, covering it on Beyond the Breakers. Let's get some background here. The Glasgow, Paisley, and Ardrossan Canal. uh, So later this will be called the Glasgow, Paisley, and Johnston Canal. This was the brainchild of Hugh Montgomery, the 12th Earl of Eglinton. It's a interesting character. Got a what seems like a pretty exciting life. Yeah, he was born in 1739. Uh, he joined the army, as a lot of these, you know, upper crust people tended to do at the time. I uh, joined the army as a captain in 1756. In the source that I was using, it's, it all it said was he served in the American War. Presumably that could be the War of Independence, or just given the time, it could be referring to like the French and Indian War, or right. possibly both. I mean, both both happening in America. Regardless, uh, he had military experience. Um, and then later on, uh, after leaving active service, he was elected to Parliament in 1780 and in 1784 for Ayrshire in Scotland. Uh, so he eventually inherited the earldom from his family. Uh, he was elected a peer of Scotland in 1798 and 1802. I don't what know exactly. I don't know what exactly what that entails, but it sounds cool and important. Yeah, yeah, it does. And in 1806, he got what seems like a, a level up promotion, uh, named a peer <laughs> of the United Kingdom as the Baron Ardrossan of Ardrossan. 
The Baron Ardrossan of Ardrossan. Yeah, very uh, appropriately named, I guess. Uh, long story short, this is a guy with enough money and plenty of connections to kind of do not exactly whatever he wants, but ha- has a lot of agency in terms of right. projects and, and things that he wants to do. So one of his main projects was the development of the harbor at Ardrossan. So hoping to make this town the primary port for the city of Glasgow. So Glasgow is pretty close to the sea, but Mm -hmm. the issue for the time is that large ships couldn't really reach it uh, because of the, just the nature of the river Clyde that it sits on. It's pretty shallow. It's very windy. It's not super well designed for large ships. And some of the sources also noted excessive silting, Uh, in the river too. So it really sort of puts a damper on navigating a river like this. Um, In addition to that, roads in the area weren't super well developed, not really designed for a bunch of heavy traffic. So even if you are bringing your goods into port relatively close to Glasgow, it's still quite a bit of work to get them there over the road. Right, right. So for this this plan of developing Ardrossan into the primary port, He was going to need a canal. Mm. So this canal would begin in Glasgow and run west through the town of Paisley and Johnston, then turn southwest to Ardrossan on the Firth of Clyde. So all told, Ardrossan is about 30 miles from Glasgow. So after getting the important part, the funds... uh, So it was kind of like a, a fundraising endeavor where people would invest in the canal, you know, local businessmen, other people sort of of his uh, his social circles. So they would sort of contribute funds to this as an investment. Um, and then after receiving royal assent from George III, canal construction started in 1807. So something I had to do throughout researching the story is continually reframing my my mind for the time that we're dealing with here. We, we deal mm-hmm. with, you know, primarily shipwrecks that are happening in the late 19th century, uh, a lot of the 20th century, and and this is this is one of the earlier shipwrecks that we'll have, yeah. quote unquote shipwrecks. Uh, one of the earlier incidents that we'll have discussed here. You know, this is starting in 1807. This is super super early for our show. Uh, so the first section of this canal was designed to be a contour canal. So this mm-hmm. was this was a new term for me. I don't know a lot about canals. Yeah, I don't either. I have to confess, I'm not a canal expert. So a contour canal, as the name might imply, is one that works with the contours of the land it travels through. This keeps the canal level, going around topographical features rather than over or under or through them. Using things like tunnels and locks. Uh, Those things are really great, but they're also pretty expensive if you're you're building a canal. So these contour canals go around all of those features that might require a tunnel or a lock system. Uh, it saves that expensive engineering. It's it's cheaper. It's simpler to do. The real drawback is that it just adds distance to your canal. Right. So there's always a trade-off, and that's, that's sort of the trade-off being made here, is distance versus the expense of building this thing. So the second portion of the canal design contained a series of locks to bring the boats up to Johnston, and then the final portion, uh, as the canal neared Ardrossan, would be another series of locks to bring the boats down to sea level. However, 
as these things frequently happen with these civil engineering projects, the cost of building the canal was pretty greatly underestimated. Uh huh. And the decision was made to just suspend that final portion going all the way down to Ardrossan. Do they have a useless canal now? Uh, sort of. So, like, basically the ultimate goal of the canal is being not quite scrapped, but definitely put on hold. So, not enough money in the bank here for really what was the ultimate goal of the canal. So, passenger service would only run between Paisley and Johnston. This is only about five miles. <laughs> of our total planned canal, we're looking at, you know, like 30 miles. We, we only get about five. Uh, That's not this, great. At this point. This portion was completed in November of 1810. Uh, eventually, the canal would be completed all the way from Port Eglinton, basically in Glasgow itself, uh, in 1811, uh, but it never reached all the way down to Ardrossan. So it, it never got as... Never like uh, actually fulfilled its purpose. Its exactly. Purpose. Uh, so before we get into the main incident for today's episode, we actually need to discuss the first fatal event in the canal's history. Okay. And that is the death of the poet Robert Tannehill. Okay. So just as a content warning for our listeners, little anecdote we'll talk about here does contain uh, some discussion of depression, suicide. It's not directly related to the incident we'll be discussing. If you'd rather skip ahead a few minutes, feel free to do so. Uh, so we're going to discuss Robert Tannehill. Uh, so Robert Tannehill is considered one of the great poets of Scotland, mm -hmm. which is high praise for a country that produced Robert Burns. That's a name that I know. Like, I'm not a huge poetry person, but, like, I've heard the name Robert mm -hmm. Tannehill. Yeah, so, like, just under Robert Burns in terms of, you know, influence and notoriety. And, yeah, it's interesting with poetry, I'd say British poetry in general, but specifically Scottish poetry, you've kind of got Robbie Burns and everyone else, in a sense, mm -hmm. it often seems. To even sort of be mentioned in the same the same echelon as him is, is super high praise for any author or any, uh, any poet, any, any form of writer in May of 1810. So this is several months before the Johnston Paisley portion of the canal was completed. Tannehill had unsuccessfully attempted to have a book of poetry published, uh, but he was rejected uh, by the publisher. So at the time he'd been publishing his stuff kind of standard for the time, you know, in smaller installments, Mm -hmm. On a like a subscription basis, it would appear in other publications, but it was a pretty big deal to actually have a full book of your poems published. Right. And so that's what he was going for. And he didn't get that, unfortunately. It's interesting to note, I, I think you see this with a lot of people in the kind of creative trades. Tannehill had really often wrestled with the, the challenge of having his work shared publicly. It was kind of a an obstacle that he'd had to get over. So mm -hmm. quoting from his, his biographer, William McLaren, such was the extreme modesty of his nature that though the qualities of his mind had ripened into superior excellence, it was with difficulty that his friends could persuade him to offer any of his early pieces for publication. I think it's interesting to see that how very often people who are extremely talented, they sort of have the least confidence in themselves. Right. You know, in a bout of severe depression compounded by some concerns that he had about his health and obviously this this rejection of his work. Uh, so Tannehill burned his remaining manuscripts. He went to the unfinished canal and threw himself into a culvert. Uh, his body was found after uh, passersby noticed the jacket that he had left hmm. nearby 
the time of his suicide, Robert Tannehill was 35. He's commemorated on the Scott Monument in Edinburgh, along with other like super illustrious figures. So like Lord Byron, Robert Burns, James Hogg, even Mary Queen of Scots is on this also. Uh, so yeah, he's That's he's considered right up there with all of those other names that one you know associates with the history of mm-hmm. Scotland and specifically in the arts. A sad tale. His work is is pretty widely available. I know this is a couple printed collections of his stuff, uh, and he really did get more notoriety after his death. Um, and obviously, he's well remembered for his work. Uh, Apparently, probably... he also wrote the song that would become "Waltzing Matilda." I know he contributed to it. He he um his verses was the song that got changed into like he and, didn't and, write Walsing Matilda, but like the thing that inspired it, I guess. Yeah, and that's that's actually the case with a few of his pieces of writing. So for anyone who knows the song The Wild Mountain Time, uh he he wrote a version that was basically a a preliminary version of the one that would become famous. And that's one reason that maybe his name is not as well known is because people would kind of take his stuff and, and alter it, adapt it for their own sort of purposes. And obviously that's, that's just how art works. He has a bigger footprint, I think, than many people would realize for a, you know, a name that might not be as well known. Right. With that depressing prologue, let's get <laughs> into the main incident we'll be discussing today. And this is one of those stories where guess what? Uh, it gets worse. <laughs> Our incident. So as we just mentioned, the the canal was completed in 1810, at least this segment of the canal. You know, it was never really completed at all. This little passenger section of the canal was completed in 1810, uh, and it was open for travel in early November. That sounds like a really not fun time to be like just hanging out by a big ditch in England or in Scotland. Yeah, it seems like it would be kind of a a dreary, depressing time to be hanging out by a canal in Scotland. Uh, So I've got an excerpt here from James Whitlaw, writing in the London Mechanics magazine, specifically about the canal and about the boats that are going to be used in the canal. So, quote, The length is 70 feet, width 6 feet, and 1 foot 10 inches is the depth. With 90 passengers, which is as many as a boat can conveniently take, the draft of water is 19 and a half inches. When all the passengers are out, the draft is only 5 inches. A small detail that made research a little bit more quick this time is because this is so old, I don't have to do any conversions between metric and standard (laughs) measurements. Uh, He continues, he's referring to a diagram that's included. We'll share that online. I've just got a scan here of it. Uh, So talking about this diagram, uh, the part at the bow is a deck for the passengers and the part marked six feet has seats around it. The six feet towards the stern is for the same purpose, and the seven feet is a deck on which the steersman stands. The ribs are made of light gunnel iron, and a rim of the same goes round the inside of the top edge of the boat, on which the wooden gunnel is fixed by means of square-headed screws. There are light ribs of wood laid inside the boat on which the flooring is nailed, and a broad strip of wood runs between the seats and windows, so high that the passengers may rest their backs upon it. This is designed, obviously, it's got sitting space. It's got enough room for 90 to 100 people is what we're looking at here. I feel like for its time, it's probably, like, decently nice. Yeah, and and that's sort of what it's... what you expect in the 1800s. 
Yeah, it's like it's it's designed to be like a pleasure excursion boat. So yeah, it's it's supposed to be pretty nice. I mean, there's articles being written about it because because people are so excited about it. Right. That particular one's interesting because the the main focus of it, it's not really like a general interest piece. Comes from this London Mechanics magazine. The focus is on the physics of the waves themselves in the canal, uh, how mm-hmm. they are affected by the boats and how the boat is affected by them. So it goes into a lot of talking about things like the ideal speed and how traveling at a certain speed in the boat affects the ride, basically, how, how it travels through these waves. Interesting. So they were still sort of feeling out what's the best way to do this, what's the most what's what's the best balance of efficiency and comfort for these types of right. boats. And also remember this whole time, this is a canal boat. It's not propelling itself it's being pulled by animals on shore so everyone is excited for this canal these boats everyone's looking forward to it the passenger service on the canal operated completely safely for (laughs) four days four days until the incident we'll be discussing here so if you've got one of those this is only this is only four days in yes oh (laughs) so it it's running these passenger routes uh, between Paisley and Johnston. And again, everything's going fine for four days. And that brings us to November 10th of 1810. So this is a Saturday. And this is also the Feast of St. Martin, or St. Martin's Day. Uh, okay. So there was a popular local fair. A lot of people would have been taking off work. It's also one of those things that sort of jars you into what what time this is taking in that it's a Saturday and the work week has not been as solidly established as it is now. Right. So anyway, you've got people uh, taking off uh, from work. There's this local fair, lots of people out and about trying to enjoy this time. A lot of people with their families uh, for this feast day. So the vessel at the center of our story today is the Countess of Eglinton, named for the wife of the aforementioned Hugh Montgomery, who was the Earl of Eglinton. Uh, So Countess of Eglinton was the first of these passage boats constructed for travel on the canal. So that description I read earlier was kind of a general description of these boats. Mm -hmm. And this this is the first one that is, is put into service. So for the previous few days, it had been taking passengers along the route on pleasure excursions and had become a real can't-miss type of attraction. Everyone wanted to ride on this thing. Quoting from a contemporary letter that was included in Walter Scott's Edinburgh Annual Register for 1810, uh, quote, Today is a fair with us, and every lad and lass who could muster eight pence must have a sail. About an hour ago... The boat landed at the basin, opposite Mr. Barclay's, with nearly a hundred on board, for she is sixty feet in length, and as many were on the breast, anxious to replace them. (laughs) A careful listener might notice a discrepancy in the length. He mentions it being sixty feet in length. He's referring basically to the functional, usable amount of depth space. So, as just described, the Countess of Eglinton was approaching the wharf in Paisley with a full complement of passengers uh, coming in from Johnston. So as these passengers are getting ready to disembark, you have this full boat coming in. You've also got an even larger crowd waiting on the dock to get on board right. for the next trip. Everyone wants to ride this thing. <laughs> so continuing the quote here. The wharf was at that time crowded with many people. 
some of whom had been brought there by curiosity alone, but many of them were waiting to take their passage by return of the boat. And as there appeared to be much greater number waiting for a passage than the vessel could possibly contain, a general push took place, particularly among the young people, striving who should get first on board. As the passengers from Johnston had not all got out, nor had the boat put about for the purpose of receiving those who intended to embark, the boatmen called out to the people to desist from coming on board, but without effect. So something to keep in mind is, you know, again, this is a canal boat. It doesn't have the freedom of movement that another type of vessel right. might have. It needs to come in, get people off, and then it needs to turn around uh, so that it doesn't have to do that with a full complement of passengers. Right. It's not even close to being prepared to take on passengers. It hasn't even really finished its initial journey at this right. point. Um, it, it reminded me of the of the General Slocum episode, the, uh, what was it, 900 intoxicated anarchists? <laughs> yeah, they're trying to take over. Trying to take over the boat and have to get fought off with fire axes. <laughs> they could have used some fire axes on this day, I would say. So at this point, the crew of the boat, they know that they, they've just got to stop people from getting on. They know what the right. boat can handle, and they know that this is way too much, and there's no sign of, of it stopping. They can't calm the crowd down. They can't control people. So the next best thing in their minds is if we can't stop people from getting on, we can at least move away from the people. Right. Yeah. So you can't. Yeah. Like to the middle of the canal, basically. Basically. Just or are they push in the basin? So they're in the basin, technically. Okay. So trying to push away and get away from these people. Uh, so continuing the quote here, they continued to crowd into the boat, few of them going below till the boatmen, afraid of the vessel being overset, applied their poles to the wharf in order to push her off from the side and thereby prevent the continual influx of passengers. I keep on wanting to shift into like an old timey radio voice that wouldn't even make any sense here because we don't we're not even <laughs> talking about a radio. Yeah. So moving the boat away from the wharf, obviously, you're moving it away from the main problem, but kind of moving it into another one. Yeah, sounds like it's about to be a bigger problem. Yeah, so there's this unintended effect here. Uh, an important detail here is that, yes, you've got all these people coming on, and there it was also mentioned how none of them are going inside. None of them are going below deck. So you've got right. all this weight on the top deck. So top-heavy from the excess of passengers on her deck, and now, at this point, away from any support from the dock, the boat begins to heal really dramatically. Right. The motion thereby occasioned caused the people on deck to stagger and shift towards one side. This fateful movement giving an additional impulse to the healing of the boat, she was instantly overbalanced, and more than 200 people, by whom the deck was crowded, were at once thrown into the water. We've got real situation on our hands now. All those people who are on the deck, they're all in the canal now. And I so, imagine it's kind of hard, too, with a vessel rolled over like that. There's not a lot of room to operate. Yeah, there really canal. isn't. We're not talking about a huge amount of space. I mean, you can see depictions of the canal as it was, and you can see what's left of the canal in places, and you're not talking about a lot of space. Right. This is kind of gives me um, Eastland vibes. Mm -hmm. Proto-Eastland disaster. Very much so. We'll pause the narrative here and talk about the situation of some of those people in the water. So obviously, that's bad. People on the boat, you don't want them in the water. You want them on the boat. It's also November, so it's probably cold, huh? Now, now they're in the water. So time of year is a big deal. Yes, it's cold. The water's cold. But you've also got a lot of people who are bundled up because of that weather. 
Uh, so now they're in the water and they're in all these heavy layers of clothes. That's a problem. This is a, you know, this is like a, a pleasurable daytime excursion thing. You've got families. You've got a lot of children and a lot of infants. You know, and anyone who's holding an infant, obviously, is going to have a harder time saving themselves. Right. That's going to be a factor. You've got a large number of passengers thrown into a relatively small, compact area. So, like, as, as you mentioned, there's the, there's the issue of there's just not a lot of space here. We talk about that with a lot of the episodes where people are having to, to get off of a, a ship into the water. Something mm-hmm. that is overlooked sometimes is the danger just of being crushed and, you know, pushed together by all these other people. Right. The depth of the canal. Now, the depth of the canal is only six to eight feet. Right. That's pretty shallow. That's the shallowest water that we've really had an incident happening in. Yeah, for sure. Or close to. Really shallow, but a lot of those on board couldn't swim. Yeah, I think that kind of goes back to that um, thing that they were saying with the General Slocum, that, like, being, like, swimming being common knowledge is, like, a relatively, like, late 1900s thing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't common for people back in the day to know how to swim. Yeah, it's like, so So what if it's only eight feet deep if you can't swim? It doesn't... Right. That's that's going to be a, an issue. Uh, so there's the depth of the canal, and then something else to, to keep in mind. It's it's another factor that we really haven't encountered, to my knowledge, in any other episode. This is an artificially made canal, so it's got really high, really steep sides. Yeah, it, so it's more like a swimming pool than like if, the beach. If you're in the canal, it's very hard to get out. Uh, you know, compare this to a, say, a natural river, which is going to be a bit more gradually sloped. It's probably going to be a little easier to get out if you can just get to the riverbank. Whereas right. here, you've got a bunch of people in the water and really not that far from safety. And there's just no way to get out. It's a terrifying little thing to imagine here. For sure. And again, it's cold. You're probably losing energy very, very rapidly. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a nightmare. Uh, so around 60 people were actually trapped in the interior of the boat. Uh, most of these were not able to be rescued. Because remember, you've got this, basically this human crush surrounding this. And all these people who are still trying to get off from their from their journey, uh, you know, coming into the, into the dock, a lot of them can't ever get out of the cabin. Right. So going back to quote from, uh, from Scott. The scene to those who saw it was awful. Numbers, no doubt, were taken up, but numbers, too, perished. A gentleman present tarried till he saw 40, all corpses to appearance, and it is said that 51 in all have been dragged out, few of whom, it is dreaded, will recover. Fortunately, there were quite a few in the vicinity uh, who really jumped into action to rescue people. One of the Mm -hmm. highlights, I think, of, of all the stories we research is seeing the heroism and bravery that is on display in the midst of all of the tragic elements. This story is the same. Uh, so lots of people retrieved, you know, ropes, poles, hooks, nets, anything really that could be used to rescue or pull people out of the water. However, this very nearly backfired. <laughs> Quoting again here, their eagerness to accomplish this object had almost proved fatal to themselves. For by crowding all to one side of the boat, they had nearly occasioned a repetition of the fatal incident. And but for the actions of Mr. Barclay, it's probable that a second disaster similar to the first would have been added to the horrors of this calamitous scene. 
So basically, like, they're trying so hard to help that they're creating a dangerous scene. Yes, you've got people basically jumping onto the boat again to try to get people off and almost doing the exact same thing. And it's just this uh, this Robert Barclay or Barkley. He's standing on the on the shore directing people because he kind of has a bigger picture of everything. He wasn't on the boats. He's a local and he saw this whole thing developing even even before the incident actually happens. He's on scene directing people, trying to get them to stop. stop. So he's sort of in control from the moment it happens. So, yeah, I mean, among the rescuers, there's a few that stand out and were noted for particular heroism. The Robert Barclay that we just mentioned, he lived nearby. He was shouting these warnings and he personally resuscitated a child who was pulled from the water unconscious. He had a house right nearby. So they opened uh, he and his family opened up the home to survivors. They also had, you know, obviously bodies had to be taken there, too. Um, And they provided basically anything that they could from their own personal belongings to people who needed it. So really, really on hand. resuscitated a child? Yes. Yeah, we'll talk more about that aspect of it in a, in a minute here. A man named Lawrence Hill. One source called him Lawrence Hiltz. I don't know which one is correct. I'm going to go with Hill. Mm-hmm. The noteworthy thing here is Lawrence Hill was 70 years old. That's crazy. Which, I mean, in 18, 10 years, that's like, he's like 100. Yeah, easily. <laughs> uh, so he's this, this 70-year-old man... He jumps into the water to start pulling out survivors, and he does this until the cold literally forces him to require assistance out of the water, too, mm-hmm. which is super impressive. Some people are just built different, and uh, <laughs> he's certainly one of them. Uh, another man named Alexander Whitehill, he rescued at least six people before, similarly, he, he needed treatment himself. And various medical personnel who were on hand who really quickly and effectively provided life-saving resuscitation. Hmm. Which for the time, this was pretty cutting edge stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually I'm kind of surprised to hear that. Yeah, and so an interesting detail that came up in I forget exactly which one of my sources, but there had not too long before this been a presentation at a local like medical college or school or something, where a doctor, I think Dr. Kerr was his name. I'll have to check on that. But he had actually given a presentation on some of these new procedures that they were sort of testing out and developing, you know, things like CPR that they had started working on and learning more about. And the fact that that presentation had been given and some of that knowledge had started to be dispersed around, there were more people on hand at this incident who had that resuscitation knowledge. Yeah. Which is just It's kind of just like one of those dumb luck kind of situations. The timeliness of that is really just amazing. Uh, So a lot of other unnamed individuals from the town, you know, lots of people helped out. Not everyone's name was recorded, but it's very much a group effort. And there's a good quote here, I think, that sums that up. One spirit seemed to actuate the whole. The desire of doing good was everywhere predominant. And the best proof the zealous exertions made by all is to be found in the number of lives saved. It's indeed a melancholy fact that 85 persons perished. But when we consider the peculiar circumstances in which this disaster took place, it's rather a matter of surprise that so many were saved. We've seen this before where you sort of have to squeeze out some good from a horrible tragedy right. like this. But we've, we've talked about this before. There's numerous things that we've talked about with horrendous death tolls. But still, more people survived than one might expect, given the circumstances. Right. Yeah, I mean, any... If- 
if you have an incident like this in a canal, like it, it's just a matter of how many people you can save. And like in this scenario, it's very lucky that there's people there to take charge and, you know, people that knew what they were doing to prevent it from being worse. Yeah. Final death toll was calculated at 84, uh, with a majority of these people being under the age of 20. Damn. Yeah. So you've got very young children, you've got adolescents, you know, young adults on this. Um, so yeah, something like, I think three quarters of them were, were under 20. And this is That's considered the, the worst canal disaster in British history. This is one, you know, sometimes we, we kind of say that we're surprised we haven't heard of something. This one kind of makes sense. I, I, w- I guess I wouldn't have expected myself to know about a, a canal disaster in Scotland from the early 1800s. But right. I'm, I'm glad that this one came up just in my kind of random readings that I was doing. And, um, yeah, I thought it was a story that could use some coverage in, in a medium like this. Like we were saying before the show, there's not a ton of stuff about it like online like even if you just go to the wikipedia page like there's there's not a lot of information yeah so i definitely have to dig for it a little bit yeah i had to use some i had to stretch a little bit and and try to to track down sources that i i don't normally use but it was good i ended up having to learn quite a bit of stuff on to the aftermath of the incident Uh, so in 1820 a railway was planned in, in order to complete the final link from Johnston to Ardrossan. So that segment that kind of just got indefinitely suspended saying, Hey, Uh we, we can complete this, but you know, why are we, why mess around with the canal? Let's, let's just use a railway work started on this. This was completed only as far as kill winning before the funds ran out. So kind of, you know, creeping closer and closer and closer to Ardrossan. It's just, it's just funny that it's like, it's not that far. It really isn't. And the amount of it on a map, now and it's like wow it's like 30 miles is nothing to us it's interesting to watch the development of of this canal and just kind of fits and starts slowly slowly but just never quite gets there right uh so in 1869 so jumping ahead quite a bit in time here the canal was purchased by the glasgow and southwestern railway Uh, an act of parliament in 1881 closed down the canal and then a lot of the route was filled in and replaced by the Paisley Canal Line Railroad. So it follows, a lot of it follows generally the same route as the canal had done. To this day, I thought this was interesting for any of our rail aficionados. Uh, to this day, there's a railway bridge in use. It's called the River Cart Aqueduct. And that originally did form part of the, the original canal. Then it was converted for rail use in 1885. This makes it allegedly the oldest railway bridge still in active use. Interesting. I only saw that in one source, and I, I couldn't find anything else that said so. I usually like to find, like, at least two things that that say it, but right. I don't know. It's probably probably a, a fact that's able to be verified somehow. So that was cool. Really old railway bridge. Not much is left of the canal. There are some original segments still remaining in areas in and around Paisley. Again, a lot of it's covered over by railroad or remnants of railroad. Um, a lot of it has been built over, filled in. But there are still a few original segments remaining. You can see some pictures of it online. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, final final thoughts on this one. So like many of the stories that we talk about on here, the tragedy of this one for me really does come from the fact that it was almost 100% avoidable. Right. Yeah, like none of it had to happen. 
Yeah, and we we see that in in some of these, but there's typically some other factor in play. You know, something something malfunctions, or there's a there's a lack of maintenance on something. Someone someone overlooks whatever, or you know, sometimes we have them. It's just a it's just a freak accident of nature. I mean, we talked about the the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, and right. for a lot of those ships, there's there's nothing you could have done. Sometimes nature just takes over and and shows you who's boss. But this isn't one of those. This is one where you can I would say this is as as absolute as possible. You can chalk this one up to humans making bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, in, this one in yeah. mass. So, yeah, it's uh it's it's particularly tragic in that nothing had to happen bad on this day. It had been operating fine and then on this particular day you've just got a lot of uh uncontrolled human enthusiasm. And it leads to this tragedy. I mean, that's... Yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a different topic than what we normally talk about. But it's it's just another example of how maritime stuff anywhere can be extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, our two biggest well, two of our biggest ones we've talked about occurred on canals or rivers with the Sultana and this. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's I, I guess you know we we try to talk about lessons learned from these things. What can we really draw from this? And yeah, I think that that really gets at it is that there's no 100% way to guarantee safety boats ships the water is is an inherently there's there's an inherent level of risk mm-hmm. and that's the caution that needs to be demonstrated you know basically at all times is showing respect for the dangers inherent to maritime travel it's also really important i think it gives you a better appreciation for modern events and modern crowd control and how you know, we can get 60,000 people in a building to watch a concert or a football game and then have them leave orderly. Like, this story has as much to do with, like, human crush type events that mm-hmm. have happened in soccer stadiums and, you know, at concerts as it does, you know, some of the other things we've talked about. Right, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, arguably a, a story. This could have happened. This didn't necessarily need to be on a ship. This You could have a similar story anywhere, really. But so yeah, like you also a, said, it's just another example of how literally in, there's so many different dangers in a maritime situation, like even mm-hmm. things like this. Yeah. The idea that you've got all these people who are drowning or being, you know, being, being crushed, whatever. And a lot of these people are quite literally just feet away from being rescued. There's just nothing that can be done to get them out in time. And that is... That's just like a it's it's like a really devastating part of the story is is how often we see that uh, the proximity to safety, but just not being able to get that that final step of the way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a depressing story. So I guess I'll end things with a callback to Robert Tannehill, the poet that we discovered or that we discussed earlier. I, I like several of his poems and there's a few lines here I'll read just to, to have a little artsy tie-in to, to wrap things up here. Fly we to some desert isle. There we'll pass our days together. Shun the world's derisive smile, wandering tenants of the heather. Sheltered in some lonely glen, far removed from mortal ken. Forget the selfish ways of men, nor feel a wish beyond each other. So that was an excerpt from Robert Tannehill's poem, Fly We to Some Desert Isle. Probably my favorite of, of, his, uh, of his work. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just that's nice. 
wanted to include that in the episode since we since we talked about him at the beginning. Figured give him give him a little a little bit of a attention at the end here. So that is the story of the Paisley Canal disaster. I got a lot out of researching this one. I had to learn quite a bit about canals and <laughs> the Glasgow metropolitan area. But yeah, it was good. I, I, I enjoyed doing this one. I'm glad we could cover this one. And I think that's really all I've got here for us Great. this week. Sounds good. Uh, next next week is our Halloween episode. Oh, we yes. Some fun stories. Some fun stories for that one. Did we talk in the last episode about what we want to do for the Halloween? No, we have not. Because I think we're, we have a different type of episode planned. We're going to be telling a few more more stories, a lot of them sort of spooky, folklore-oriented, uh, in, in honor of Halloween. So I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward to that. Yeah, be a little different. All right. Oh, was that... We're good. All right. Take care, everyone. We will talk to you all next week.